Hi, I'm Dr. Whitney Hauser with Dry Eye Coach Podcast. This is our Innovator Series, and today I'm joined by Carolyn Blackie. Caroline, welcome. Uh, Caroline is the Medical Director of Ocular Surface Disease at Johnson & Johnson Vision. Thanks for joining us. Oh, you're welcome, Whitney. It's a real pleasure to be here. So there's so much that's been going on in dry eye disease, so much that's been going on kind of with Johnson & Johnson lately. We're really glad to have you on the program and just kind of get some of your background. As the Innovator Series, we're trying to really talk to people that were on the ground floor of dry eye disease, ocular surface disease, meibomian gland dysfunction, and what their roles were in that development of either technology or just a different thought process. So today we're happy to have you as one of those innovators. And really what I want to do is see if I can talk a little bit or ask you to talk a little bit about the changes that you've seen in the ocular surface market over the past decade. Sure, thank you, Whitney, and that is, as you know, a big question <laughs> because there has been a tremendous amount happening, uh, particularly in this space over the last decade. So if you'll permit me a little bit of latitude, I'd like to take a historical approach here. Um, All right, take it, as, take it as far back as you like. <laughs> <laughs> so if we focus on dry eye, the, the space today is unrecognizable from where it was a decade. In 2008, there was very little available in terms of clarity of dry eye diagnosis, but also treatment. And I think most patients would concur that their experience was not optimal. As you know, Whitney, a typical patient journey would involve tolerating an eye care professional for as long as possible before again moving on because another treatment approach had failed. Um, and the, certainly the average eye care professional knew very little about dry eye. In right. 2007, it's, it's, it's really crazy, isn't it, when we think back to where we were and what we went through and what our patients went through and tolerated. Um, right. If we think back to 2007, the Tearful and Surface Society published that first dry eye workshop report. And these TFOS reports represent the global medical and scientific consensus based on the peer-reviewed data available at the time. And then that content is communicated through the lens of influencers and those willing to be considered the thought leaders of the time. So TIFOs did a beautiful job based on what was known. And in that report, the definition of dry eye was essentially that the condition is identified as a collection of signs and symptoms with no identifiable cause. The leading treatment recommendations were basically to measure and manage those signs and symptoms as effectively mm -hmm. as possible. And this makes it rough for patients because if you don't know what's causing a condition, it's very difficult to effectively treat that condition. And I think and, we can agree and perhaps frustrating. In, uh, pardon me as I interrupt you, but you know, as you said, the, the, it's hard to treat them, but it's hard to have a conversation with them about it because as you kind of talked about the, the churn of patients going, you know, tolerating a doctor as long as they could before they bounce to another practice. A lot of that probably was because they didn't understand and the doctor didn't understand and they couldn't convey the message to them. So there was a, there was a disconnect. A total disconnect. And I had those conversations over and over and over again with patients, just total frustration and then hope followed by disappointment and then the cycle repeating. Just a really difficult right. and frustrating time. Um, and then in the fall of 2008, TFOS published a newsletter. They stated that MDD was likely the leading cause of dry eye, and they set in motion plans to gather and review the evidence to assess this as a possibility. 
Um, the My Burning Land Disease Workshop was then published in 2011, and that report stated that based on the evidence available at the time, NGD was likely the leading, leading cause of dry eye throughout the world. So this finding was not in alignment with the diagnostic and therapeutic practices for dry eye at that time. The standard of care back then was still largely focused on measuring and managing signs and symptoms of dry eye using tear replacement drops and then suppressing the inflammatory response of an exposed ocular surface. More than that, I think it shone daylight on a long-known condition that was every bit as diagnosable as it was treatable, and that was NGD. So right. going forward, the research on NGD has greatly expanded, but it's also triggered multiple therapeutic innovations, all of which serve to raise the standard of care in the short, but also the longer term. So now mm -hmm. if we fast forward to last year, TFOS published the second Dry Eye Workshop report. And unsurprisingly, it was another spectacular effort. Many of our colleagues were involved. Um, and in that TFOS G2 report, they lay out clear diagnostic criteria for dry eye. They combine the use of a validated symptom questionnaire and any one of three tearform homeostasis markers. Super helpful for anyone in the clinic understanding that there, there is some clear criteria around which they can diagnose the, con the, the condition uh, using techniques that they, that they know and are familiar with. Right. They also state right. the important, yeah, and I think that's a big deal, right? Because your average, the average clinician now has a method by which they can feel comfortable in the space. Outline um, that for me one more time. The, the things that a clinician can just sort of take home and, and implement pretty quickly uh, to assess dry from TFOS. Yeah, so, yeah, so they, they, they stated that the diagnosis of dry eye requires that a patient have validated dry eye symptoms, which means they need to incorporate a validated dry eye questionnaire into their workup. And I think that's extremely helpful, not just because it allows the patient to have the uh, sort of the validation that they do have a problem. They can right. look at a questionnaire and see their score and go, oh, wow, this is a dry eye questionnaire and look at my score, but also because it's a it's a chronic condition that can be difficult to treat in its later stages and you're not, you, you wouldn't necessarily expect a miraculous cure. So for a patient to observe their symptoms going down over time, maybe not to zero, but going down can be extremely right. helpful for both the patient and the clinician. So I think the that, way that... Go, go ahead, go ahead. Sorry. Well, the way, I was going to say, the way that clinically I've looked at surveys is it gives a number to a feeling. And it sort of takes out the white noise of your life and really drills down to how the patient feels about their eyes. You know, in our yeah. clinic, we use, we use, we've used OSDI, we do use OSDI, but we use speed a lot. And in large part, as the name implies, it's just so fast. You know, it's not cumbersome to score and it gives us a number very quickly. Um, and that's really one of my preferred uh, tools to use. Yes, and I think to your point about taking, taking out the noise of your life, uh, anyone that's struggled with a condition that involves discomfort or pain can have a hard time recognizing that they're, that they're doing better if their symptoms haven't gone down to zero. So exactly. they, they might think, you know, I don't feel any different, but then they take that questionnaire again and they notice their symptoms have dropped by half. And that's extremely right. significant, but also for them, right, to know that it is making progress. Um, so it is. I, it's encouraging. I, it really is encouraging. Really encouraging. And, 
and that's the way I usually kind of convey it to my patients. You're not, you're not perfect, and, and quite frankly, odds are you may never be perfect, but as long as we're moving in the right direction, at least you can take some comfort in that. So in addition to the surveys, what were the other clinical features that, that you kind of highlighted? So based on the evidence that was, that, that's currently available, so the peer-reviewed data, peer-reviewed studies, they, they identified three tier form homeostasis markers and the, the, to watch out for in dry eye patients. Mm -hmm. And those are ocular surface staining, whether it be corneal, conjunctival, or lid wiper staining, mm -hmm. uh, tear breakup time, and right. osmolarity. And what they right. stated in the report, in their diagnostic section, was that you need any one of those to be below a certain threshold or above a certain threshold in combination with a, a, a validated dry eye symptoms for that to be a diagnosis of dry eye. And right. where I think that's extremely helpful is it may be in another 10 years that we, we disagree and massage those findings, but what I think is extremely helpful is that it gives clinicians a, a box that they can say, okay, I did these tests and these, this patient fits the TFOS diagnostic criteria for dry eye. Right. And so that they, then can, they then can advance and move forward through the next steps, which, which I can talk about in a second. But I think this is very helpful because for years now, and, and you know better than any of us, that, that diagnostic process can be quite tricky. And uh, you don't want to have to be in the business for... 10 to 20 years before you feel confident that you can make a diagnosis. So I think these questions really, are really helpful. Really what that provides is an entry point. So, you know, at the risk of saying it takes out the excuses, it, it does, you know, because a lot of those, you know, maybe perhaps some of the, the folks don't have osmolarity, but everyone should have staying in their office. Everyone should be able to provide a survey to your patients and really just start the conversation and get the ball rolling diagnostically. Yes, so even if, sorry, I was just no, going to say, even if you don't want to handle this, which, which I think, uh, you know, will not be the case going forward, I think that ocular surface management is going to be critical in every practice across the world, in, in, no, no matter what your specialty, but even if you don't want to handle it, at least now you can say, okay, what are these criteria for the diagnosis? Okay, you've got it, now I know where to send you. And right. so, uh, you know, just for that clarity, I think it's super helpful. Before I move on to the next question, did you have any final uh, conclusions about that? Were we just going into diagnostics, or did you want to touch on any therapeutics as well? No, I, I wanted to say a couple more things. So in that report, sure. they, they also took an additional step. They stated the importance of then identifying the cause or causes of the condition. So yes, make a diagnosis, but your next step is how did we get here? And um, they make special call out to both MGD and reduced lacrimal function so that the treatment process can target that appropriately. And then finally, along with strong validation of the significance of MGD as the primary cause of dry eye, the treatment of MGD is incorporated at its earliest stage of the disease management recommendations and continues throughout. That alone was inconceivable a decade ago. So while anyone in the space, um, yourself, myself, and all of our patients, knows that we have a long way to go. In my opinion, we have improved greatly in a relatively short time. And today, our patients have better access to not only quality care, but also ways to educate themselves about the condition. In addition, eye care professionals are coming around to the fact that dry eye patients are peppered throughout their practices, and they can no longer ignore the problem. And finally, because 
uh, eye care practitioners are also feeling more empowered to diagnose and manage the condition, many fewer eye professionals would, would, would choose to ignore the problem. So I think right. um, we've had phenomenal changes over the last decade, and I greatly look forward to what's coming next. I couldn't agree more. I mean, the awareness is higher now amongst patients. Patients come in more self-educated and, and accurately self-educated. You know, you and I have been doing dry eye care for years and years, and patients would come in with information that they had gotten, you know, off of the Internet, which had, you know, very little validity to what they were saying, and you almost had to undo all of that before you yeah. could really start you know, doing something that was more accurate. And now they come in with a, a greater degree of education, in my opinion. And our, and our colleagues also, you know, I think for, for quite a while, maybe you and I and several others were sort of the lone voices in dry eye. And now I think a lot of our colleagues are, are seeing that same level of awareness being raised and interest because not only, as you said, are they, are dry patients kind of, peppered throughout your practice and they affect a lot of different outcomes, you can't really ignore it, but it also serves as an opportunity for, you know, practice development and, and building a business because there's a lot of patients out there that are seeking help. Oh, so sure are. I'm going to move on to the next question. And, you know, you played a major role in shepherding lip, Lipiflow uh, through clinical trials and eventually to market. So there's a, there's a big transition from what's happening in a, a laboratory setting and a development setting to actually something that comes to fruition and makes it into clinical practice. But before the team could really design and build and test Lipiflow, they had to understand the role of meibomian gland dysfunction in dry eye. So could you talk a little bit about how that knowledge inspired the development team? Oh, sure. And um, again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to draw in a little bit of history here. So um, one of my favorite things to do is to comprehensively grasp what is known in the literature at various points in time. And the MGD story was a fun condition to unravel. Um, we have known, at least as far back as the late 1800s, that evacuating stagnated and infected gland contents was important for gland health. The problem was that it was also painful, and we typically reserved the practice for severely infected glands. Approximately 25 years after dry eye was first identified in a group of Sjogren's patients in the 50s, the first dry eye cascade as a result of stagnated gland contents in non-Sjogren's patients was published. Very cool. Almost like a handwritten uh, diagram in a peer-reviewed article. Yeah. In that 1977 paper, McCulley and Skylis referred to the condition that they had identified, these stagnated glands, as meibomian dysfunction. And in that same study, they, re they reversed the signs and symptoms of dry eye by expressing the stagnated contents of the glands. Sounding familiar? <laughs> right, <laughs> so, right. It's, it's funny, right? 1977, it's like, oh, we have come nowhere. Um, a few years later, there were a series of publications that emerged in the literature on NGD, and they were all converging around the same finding, that stagnated gland contents needed to be evacuated to restore the gland function, but also that NGD doesn't always present as inflammation and infection, that you actually need to look for it. And, of course, that requires careful evaluation of the glands, even when the lids appear normal. So we knew all of this. Um, in 2005 when the company was founded, including knowing various methods of evacuating gland contents. But the, the problem was the 
that it was uncomfortable and it was time consuming for both the patient and the doctor. So at Tear Science, we wanted to create a method of evacuating gland contents that was effective, relatively comfortable, and also low risk. And that meant trying to find a way to combine heat and pressure while simultaneously protecting that ocular surface. And along the journey, we were fortunate to build and test multiple therapeutic energies and apply them to the eyelids and the glands in various ways. It was a very exciting time. Um, in the process, we learned how effective the eyelids are at protecting the eye from heat and why the external lid, why external lid heating is so limited. Um, that was also super interesting. Uh, in a moment of serendipity, we also learned that we could heat the inner lid surface and bypass the insulating properties inherent to the eyelids altogether. Mm -hmm. so that was very exciting. Um, and along the way, we, we sort of in parallel, we created a way to standardize the assessment of meibomian gland function with the MGE. So that was another critical step, which opened up our thinking in terms of what meibomian gland function actually is and how it relates to the blank. And then in, in combination, uh, the rest is history. So I think it was really based, <laughs> it, right, it was based on taking what was known and just trying to find a way to work around the natural protective mechanisms of the eyelid. You know, it's funny to hear you go through the, the chronology of it, to really talk about it from the, the beginning stages of identification in the 1800s to the 1970s and forward, because I think a lot of clinical practitioners see this whole phenomenon coming on the scene in 2005, 2007, and so forth. And it's interesting to me to hear really the background because most things don't just pop up out of nowhere. There's something that's really been a, a progressive nature of the design, a progressive nature of the effectivity, which is really what you've sort of established for us. And I think you did it beautifully. Um, so finally, you know, you've, you've got something that's kind of a concept that's actually been realized. And when Lipoflow's early trials began, did you feel that Lipoflow was going to have the impact that it ultimately did? I mean, it, it really was a paradigm shift. I mean, it wasn't just about gland expression behind the microscope anymore. This was a, an entirely novel type of treatment. So um, we knew that evacuation of stagnated gland contents was, was critical to meibomian glands ultimately ocular surface rehabilitation. We knew that. And we also knew that Lipofo would be effective because we designed it to bypass the limitations of current treatments. But we did not predict that the automated single-dose treatment would be quite so effective and so consistently effective in our hands as well as uh, the multiple additional studies across the globe in the hands of others. Uh, we, didn't, we did not predict that. Um, what also... You hit on a you hit on an important part. You know, things can be very uh, can be very useful, can do a great job in the hands of skilled people in labs. But to take something that can transition to market and and with just basic onboarding, get uh, a practice's feet wet, they can really take off with it. I think that's really where the rubber meets the road, honestly. I think that's the big differentiator is, is that piece. Yeah, and, and as, as you know from all of our conversations, I, I tend to get very focused on what's the actual data rather than medical storytelling. 
And right. uh, I've, I've really enjoyed to see, and I love to see these studies coming out, just showing again and again, again, validating what was really already known. We, we just came up with kind right. of a cool method of doing it, but that you've, you need to move those stagnated contents out of the glands. Um, right. what, what also is, is very interesting is um, the, the additional research that's emerged over time showing the impact of meibomian gland health on the health of the ocular surface and then extremely high prevalence of MGD in all age groups, including pediatric populations. So mm -hmm. uh, we know MGD is the leading cause of dry eye, uh, which is somewhat of an exploding crisis in and of itself. But MGD has also been shown to have a negative impact on almost every aspect of the ocular surface in general. Uh, Tearful host defense is just a single example. So, right. I think this further highlights the need for effective treatment for MGD, which, which can reduce those hassles of patient compliance and also has the potential to reduce the number of trips to the eye doctor, but also just raise the level of care that we can provide to our patients in general. Right, uh, and that right. was, that was we, an unpredicted outcome as well. You know, having something substantive that can move the needle is is refreshing in dry eye disease, frankly. I, you know, we talked about our personal histories with being involved in dry eye disease, and for so long you felt like you were, you know, just giving a Band-Aid or, you know, placating the patient, and you really weren't making a big enough impact where they could appreciate the difference. And I think that's one of the exciting things about what Lipiflow does. A lot of our patients come out saying, I feel better, I feel different. Um, and I think that's really encouraging to both doctor and patient. So do you think that Lipiflow is paving the way towards a more procedure-based view of dry eye treatment? I mean, we've had pharmaceuticals, we've had OTCs, we've had, you know, take-home things that you can purchase in office. Where do you think this is, is playing a role or, or where is it positioned? Yeah, I, I, I think it certainly is playing a role. Um, all treatments have risks and benefits, and the more options we can create for our patients, the better all of our treatments have to be in order to remain competitive. Um, and I do strongly believe that device treatments have the potential to help mitigate compliance issues and, you know, right. back to the doctor. So this goes back to this whole uh, potential to elevate patient care. I think it's positive. Right. Com com compliance issues are a huge, I mean, across medicine, yeah. whether your patient has glaucoma, dry eye, what have you, having to use a pharmaceutical agent regularly can be a, a deterrent. doesn't mean it's not beneficial to the patient. could be used adjunctively with different treatments, but definitely is a barrier sometimes, you know, and, and, and payment for those um, medications can be a barrier for some of our patients as well. So it's yes. just yes. something to, to definitely consider. So the other components of the Lipiflow suite are Lipiscan and Lipiview. You know, nothing really speaks louder than pictures. And what's the difference, do you think, that it makes when doctors can easily see those clear images of atrophied or dysfunctional meibomian glands? You know, there's probably, the question probably more broadly asks, you know, what's the, the impact of doctors? But then what also is the story that it's telling to their patients? Yeah, so um, nothing like the power of the anecdote. Uh, I experienced this with my own patients. I performed white light mybography using a transilluminator for years, and I would report my findings back to the patient verbally. Communicating that content was really time-consuming, and I would often have to do it multiple times because they struggled to grasp what I was telling them, understandably. And so having a picture of their own gland structure to show them 
was transformative for both of us uh, every time I did it. But, but Whitney, more than that, it facilitated an easy transition for me into proactive care. And what I mean by that is eye care is still somewhat entrenched in a, um, a reactive practice model where we only take a second look at the meibomian glands and eyelids once the patient reports a problem. However, as we both know <laughs> from painful experience, once the patients are symptomatic, they've already advanced down the pathological path of dry eye. And depending on how long they've been there, the process can be hard to roll back. So I learned that routine evaluation of gland function structure was a very simple and empowering way to practice proactive care, as well as keep my entire patient population educated about the importance of meibomian glands and eyelid health in general. So, um, you know, we, we, we were talking about this earlier, an educated patient is also much easier to treat when a problem arises. And it's additionally, right. or was for me, it's extremely helpful when having conversations around lifestyle choices, such as fitting contact lenses and cataract and refractive surgery. So in my opinion, proactive care of the ocular surface is definitely where we need to go as a profession. And having these kinds of images and ways to view the structure, just starting with the structure, uh, was really a critical step in that process. I think, you know, as doctors, for, for many years, and, and perhaps as long as there's been, you know, medical care, doctors, you are the people that patients came to when something was wrong. You come because you need something fixed. And I think what we're seeing in current times and in current practice of medicine and, and eye care is we're having a shift from problem-based, you know, complaint-based, disease-based to more of a wellness-based model. I think that people in general are more open-minded to a wellness model, and I think that using tools like uh, LipaView and LipaScan, as you said, to really evaluate you know, the state of the union, so to speak, in a patient has served as a huge benefit versus being reactive to complaints of discomfort, complaints of fluctuating vision, and all the other things that we hear in the chair. I think you really, really outlined that beautifully. Yeah, it's exciting. I think we, we have got, I really look forward to, I hope we get to have this conversation <laughs> in the future because I really look forward to what, what is innovated and what comes out over the next decade and how we can truly take eye care to the next level. Right. Well, speaking of that, what is next for you? And without you know, divulging any you know, trade secrets, can you tell us what's ahead with LipaFlow and with the other ocular service innovations in the pipeline? So I'm going to answer that more philosophically than specifically. Um, oh, that's not what we want, Caroline. <laughs> I'm going to be, but, but, but Whitney, you know me. <laughs> I know you. I'm teasing. I know you. You know You're me. very close so, to the vest. I thought I could trick you and tease out a little bit of, uh, a little bit of information for our audience. Yes. So if you think about it, the Oculus, and I, and I love thinking about this, which will be no surprise to you, that the Oculus surface is a system the Oculus Surface of the System is a series of specialized tissues that are connected by that single surface epithelium and the tearful they produce. So when you consider the advances over the last decade, we can conclude, and I do, that we've done a reasonable job of targeting some of those specialized tissues, including understanding why they matter. But we have a long way to go. Um, we partner with our patients over the entire lifespan and their ocular surface matters at every stage of their journey. 
So I look forward to a future where we can show up at all of those stages to effectively right. evaluate the service health, and then when problems arise, to address them directly. Uh, right. So I, I think I, I, that's the way I'd like to answer that. I think, I think we're ready to really transform how we have a conversation about the ocular surface and how we administer eye care at every stage of the patient journey. Um, and right. I'm, I'm, very, I'm very excited. In my, in my opinion, the ocular surface is the only place to be. It's, it's extremely cool. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. <laughs> yeah, we're at the threshold of a whole new day. We really are. Well, and to, to kind of echo what you said, I think that for so long, um, and I, I usually take a clinical perspective, and I can definitely appreciate how you and I sort of blend together from a research perspective as well, but, you know, from a clinical perspective, many times you could look out into your waiting room and identify the dry patient. You know, she was a 50-plus woman sitting there, a little glassy-eyed, a little maybe hyperemic, and you just could see her coming from a mile away. And I think what we've found is the face of dry is changing. We're seeing younger and younger patients. I mean, there, you can't go to a restaurant without seeing a two-year-old with an iPad, you know, being, mm -hmm. you know, uh, sidetracked so the parents can have a conversation. So when children are on digital devices, you know, from birth, and yes. we see, you know, cosmetic use, and, you know, so that's been for years, and we see more gentlemen in dry disease, and we're just seeing this kind of constant evolution of our demographics. I think what you're saying couldn't hold more true. It's just really a cradle-to-grave condition that we have to be mindful of and can impact so many things as you go down the road, effectivity and, and you know, biometry of cataract surgery, potential for LASIK mm -hmm. surgery, contact lens. And I think you, you really hit the nail on the head. Looking at it broader is really where we need to be. And I think what you're saying really sheds light on that because I think still a lot of our colleagues are pretty well focused on a niche group of people and it's, it's affecting so many more people than we really even appreciate right now. Yes, and, you know, I, I used to say that our, our patients are, um, it, it's like that, that very old model of care, that the patients are the ones that, coming, that are coming and telling us there is a problem and then the patients are the ones that are telling us when we've addressed it. And I right. just feel, of course, the patient is at the center of this whole journey, but we have so many tools at our disposal, even today, that we can do a much better job. And then to pull ourselves out of dry eye in particular and ocular surface and into ocular surface health in general is just 100% uh, where we need to go with this. Uh, it's, 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 right. it's just a very exciting time. It's a very exciting I time. I couldn't agree more with you about your final points and the excitement with which uh, you address them. So, Caroline Blackie, I really appreciate you joining me, uh, me today, Medical Director of Ocular Surface Disease at Johnson & Johnson Vision. We appreciate your time and your historical perspective and your prospective analysis of what we have to look for in the future. Thank you, Caroline. It is my absolute pleasure, Whitney, anytime. <laughs>